Hi guys, welcome in to another Disgorge Salon. I have the pleasure of being joined today by Jill Zamorski, Master Sommelier Jill Zamorski, I should say. Uh, Jill, thank you for being here. Oh, thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here. Yeah, I gotta say you are one of the people, it, every now and then I interview people or have on the salons or in other contexts who, uh, who, do po- who do podcasts that I listen to. And it's always disconcerting mm-hmm. to hear, uh, like to have a conversation with a voice that I mostly just hear talking at me. Um, or, you know, kind of talking and I just am listening. So I'm gonna like, you know, try and get over that. Uh, and we'll talk about about uh, reading and drinking and about wine books in a minute. But what, first of all, Jill, just like, it's such a, I, I ask this question all the time, but I find the answers to be always fascinating. Um, how did you get interested in wine in the first place? Gosh, um, it was completely by accident. I didn't grow up with, you know, uh, my parents weren't collectors or anything like that. Um, and they like wine. They certainly drink more wine now that I've made a career out of it than they did ever Mine before. Too. <laughs> um, yeah, I know. It's like <laughs> the thing we don't talk about, the side perk for like family members, yeah. <laughs> the access and the information. Um, it was completely, uh, completely randomly. I had a part-time job in college uh, and I mean, I, I polished things. It was working at a really fancy restaurant, but I, you know, polished stemware and and, and, pl- and like silverware and and uh, and plates and stuff. But they let me sit in on all the menu meetings and the wine tastings, and that was just passively learning about wine. It wasn't actually until I, um, I think probably, gosh, the first restaurant I worked in with a sommelier where I realized like you could actually make a career out of it. I always thought it was interesting as I started tasting wine, and and that was the kind of the time in my life where I made my first visit to, you know, to California, to Napa and Sonoma. And so I was like, wow, this is, it's actually pretty cool. Um, but it, I mean, I guess that was in the early 2000s, um, like around 2003, maybe 2002, 2003. And then, you know, so, so maybe you got the sense that, Hey, like this is a, a, this could be a profession, but even from that point in the restaurant industry to, to where you eventually ended up, like that's a, those are some pretty big steps. What, what along the way kind of either, uh, it kind of helped you move towards that or, or were there like moments or jobs even that were like very instrumental in getting you there? Well, that restaurant uh, that I worked at that had the first sommelier that I, that I met, that I got to know, that's also how I learned about the court of master sommeliers. And okay. so uh, that, that I learned, you know, she, she told me about it. She, she participated in, and had passed several levels. And so she was the one who introduced me to this, you know, whole certification body of, you know, of wine professionals. And so kind of, you know, it's like what they say in the restaurant industry, you know, like it, you kind of get bitten by the bug. And the same mm-hmm. thing I think is true with wine. And you're like, oh, this is a thing I can do. This is a, like a legitimate, you know, way to earn a living. Oh, this is a cool thing to do. It's delicious. It can travel potentially. Uh, and so it kind of snowballed a little bit from there. Um, but that's how I first learned about it. And then I, I've said this to someone recently, and I think no one made me feel this way, but I, my first sommelier job was working for kind of a, a big deal restaurant company, working for Jose Andres. And, mm-hmm. and I, it's not that I was like so much younger than, you know, my other sommelier peers in, in DC at the time, but I, I felt like I had less knowledge, less experience. And so I, I think I just kind of created this idea in my mind that I needed to like catch up a little bit. And so it pushed me to kind of learn as much as I could. So I felt like I was not, I don't know, I guess I had a little bit of imposter syndrome or something mm-hmm. like that. And so I just kind of busted my butt to, to learn. Um, so I could feel more confident. Gotcha. And were there some opportunities? I mean, you mentioned going to, to California, but some other places that you've traveled or, or, I mean, maybe especially in that kind of uh, phase where you were kind of going pretty rapidly from yeah, maybe, you know, kind of neophyte to, to expert, like, were there some, some places you visited that were either just memorable because they're a cool place to visit or that were instrumental in helping you kind of understand wine more, more broadly? I think it was all the firsts, you know, like, mm-hmm. I think my first domestic wine trip was actually to Oregon Pinot Noir camp, which, oh, okay. you know, yeah. that was in 2008 is when I went. And so a lot of people have been on that trip and, and, it's a, you know, it's a very well done trip and it's, you know, you, you're surrounded by a bunch of other wine pros and you're like, yeah, this is cool. This is, this is super fun. And so that was a standout for me in terms of being my first ever, you know, wine trip. And then um, not long after that, I got to go on my first international wine trip and I went to Germany and that was pretty amazing because the trip was just I mean, it was lights out. It was just rock star producers and a whole bunch of super talented sommeliers whom I still know today, some of whom are, are really good friends. And so that was pretty impactful. And, and I think 
that's when it sort of a light bulb went on. I was like, you know what, you keep pursuing this and like making connections and, and doing good work. And like, this is fun. This is what I like to do. Yeah. And I, I <laughs> love traveling. Um, I miss it tremendously. I know we all do, but it was just very cool for me to realize that that's a perk of this industry. Um, and it, and we all know too, that nothing helps you understand the wines of a particular region than actually going there and, and meeting producers and, and tasting the wines in the place of their provenance. And to actually have those experiences, you know, the, the first, my, my first wine trip, my first international wine trip was like, holy moly. Um, this is, I, I want more of this, please. <laughs> yeah. So I, I also have to ask, cause you mentioned it on your podcast before, uh, you also, at a minimum, have done some travel that involved wine with your mom. And you mentioned at the top yeah. that, that uh, she's not, or at least previously wasn't much of a wine drinker. So so what has it been like doing some of that with, because I've also done some wine travel with each of my parents. Uh, neither, my dad is, likes, I mean, both my parents like wine, especially now. Neither of them are particularly knowledgeable, although my dad uh, has wor worked in restaurants and stuff. So he has kind of a, a very, you know, has a certain knowledge, but not but not really if you're listening i'm sorry um <laughs> and what is it what was it like and what has it been like you know kind of because i think it's always it, it can be really instructive for people at, at really high levels of of any industry but wine in particular to kind of remember that the bit the main audience for wine is not sommeliers you know it's for it's consumers yeah well that trip in particular, um, hashtag Soms and Moms is what I was jokingly <laughs> calling it, uh, was a trip to Provence with my mom. And it was purely because the trip, it, I won it by virtue of a contest I entered. And it was an extraordinarily generous prize. It was a trip for two people, um, including a rental car. And so it was, it was really fun. My mom had never been to France before. And, and I studied French in school. And I, I understand a lot of French. I can speak decent French. And so it was it was a riot. We had like a, a Renault little minivan and, oh, yeah. and a, just like motoring all around the south of France. And my parents have her who spends part of the time in France. She's French and she has a house in Saint-Tropez. So we extended our visit um, to stay with my parents' friend. And it was so funny because I had set up producer visits because oddly the trip did not include producer visits. Go figure. Um, and I honestly think it was very endearing to these producers that I had like my mom in tow who mm -hmm. speaks no French. She was just like, bon, bon. <laughs> like, she was just like nodding along. And like one of the like absolute like stellar visits, we got to go visit Chateau Prado and so exciting in Bendol. And, and um, I swear my mom was probably more impressed with the fact that they have an olive tree on the property that's a thousand years old. I mean, she was, she liked the wine too. Um, but meanwhile, I'm like, you know, going bananas over, over the wines that we get to taste. Um, and it, I think it is really interesting to, to think about that. My, you know, you know, now drinking, you know, rosé is something that's super common for, for those of us in the industry and for a whole lot of other people too. But I, I do think that's really important, but I think it was really endearing to have a, a professional uh, there, you know, wanting to understand more and, and really kind of dive deep, but then also someone who just wanted to taste wine and, and who was, who was kind of there for, all of it. Um, yeah. And it's, it's a good perspective to remember. And it's, it's something I think about a lot that all of my years in restaurants, I think I got, and I think a lot of people do this. I think we get really myopic about um, the importance of our roles mm -hmm. as, as sommeliers in the, you know, the, the larger industry of wine. And really we're just influencing a pretty small sliver of, mm -hmm. of the diaspora of wine drinkers. And so it's been helpful for me to always remember that it's not just about the people who self-select to come into your restaurants and things like that. It's, there's a much greater wine drinking community and we have to consider that too. Yeah. And so I wonder too, you know, what, you know, I was interesting that just timing wise today, I was interviewing Jordan Salcedo earlier today um, for the Vine Pair podcast. And, you know, she's someone who, you know, as we, as we talked, it became clear that, her kind of moving away from the restaurant industry was a kind of one of these things where part of it was intentional. Part of it was just kind of how things happened, you know, uh, some, you know, she had a kid and Ramona started taking off and it was kind of like, well, I just can't do all of these things. And the, the brand and the kid are more important to me than the restaurant job. And I'm wondering for you to like, you know, being away from restaurants for, and I'm not sure exactly how long it's been for you. Like, was it the same thing? Was it a conscious choice or did you just kind of 
find your way out of restaurants? It was actually both. Um, okay. And shout out to Jordan. I, I like her very much. I um, I haven't seen her in a long time, but um, she's a great person. Um, I it was it was very serendipitous how it worked out. Um, I was working at Alinea, and I had moved to Chicago to work at Alinea, and I was the, the wine director for the group. And I mean, I'm still very close with many of the people that I worked with there, but I didn't love that restaurant. And I also in the back of my mind. So I've been out of, I left Alinea in 2016. So it's been five years. Um, and I knew I never, I didn't want to stay in restaurants till the end of days. I didn't want to be, I actually, I had this thought at one point and I was like, I don't want to be in my forties working on the floor of the restaurant. I mean, that's a choice for some people. I just didn't want to do it because I'd done it for a long time and mm -hmm. I have worked all of the nights and the holidays and the weekends and, and all that stuff, but I didn't want to do it for the rest of my life. And yeah. the thing is, I know, and, and many, many of us do, that when you leave restaurants, you usually don't go back. And so that's a very serious consideration to do. But at that same time, you know, me not loving it there and thinking like, gosh, what, what do I do next? I'm at the, at the top of the heap of the restaurant world. This is three Michelin stars and I'm running a wine program. Um, what, what actually happened is I was contacted by a headhunter, um, you know, basically recruiting people for the position that I ultimately ended up taking. And I, I took it very seriously. I spent about, gosh, the better part of two months and countless conversations and interviews and really thinking about it because I knew that if I left, I probably wouldn't want to come back and I would hate to, to walk away from ostensibly what was a pretty good gig and like feel like I'd made a mistake and be like, mm -hmm. ah, crap. <laughs> yeah. Because I don't think they would have wanted me back, you know? Like, yeah, you can't really people ask for a do-over on that one. No, no. When people leave, um, they oftentimes, um, it's, this is just my impression. I almost feel like it's kind of like, fine, you don't want to be here, then, you know, then go, but you know, don't come calling back to me. That's just my impression. No one said that to me, but, um, but you know, it worked out. I still work for that same company. Yeah. Um, and my roles, you know, changed and, and progressed throughout the years, but I'm confident that that was a good move for me. Cool. And I think that thing that you mentioned, that's really a, a point that I've thought about a lot and, and is, is a, I would be curious your thoughts on this too, is, you know, the thought of uh, when you do restaurant work for a long time, um, whether whatever, kind of whatever it is, I think what, to some extent, whether you're working as a front of house employee, serving, bartending, working as a sommelier, or even a wine director, um, or maybe you're more management than you are full on just front of house employee, um, that, that thing of, you know, I've worked the nights, I've worked the weekends. I, at some point, you may not want that. Is there, is there just some inevitability to the restaurant industry where people are going to come, they're going to spend some amount of their working life there and leave? Or are, do you think there are things that could be done? Is there a, is there a kind of restaurant job that could have, a, you know, a wine-related restaurant job that could have kept you engaged with it? Or is it just, you know, the nature of the beast is people want to, you know, people want to dine when they want to dine. And that means working nights and holidays. It means also like, you know, at some point someone has to be in the restaurant selling the wine. Like, I, I just am curious if you think there's a model for a kind of a restaurant professional that isn't nights and weekends and stuff like that. Well, you know, I think it depends. I think it depends on the, the type of environment you're in. I think it also depends on your own personality. And I, I would... I don't know, venture to say that a lot of folks who work in the industry, there are some like commonalities in our personalities. And one of the nice things about working in restaurants is it's never the same. It's never boring. And so, and, you know, I look back at my career and, and I don't think I was like a job hopper, but it's not uncommon to change jobs every couple of years when you work in restaurants, you know, you, you can move to different cities, you can take on different roles, you can grow in your roles. And so I think sometimes people get restless um, and some people might be completely comfortable just, you know, with more of a, a routine and something consistent year in and year out. And I think I'm not necessarily one of those people. I think I was always wanting a little bit more and getting a little bit restless. And I think there are lots of opportunities to grow into. I mean, there are folks who, and I have been in that role where you're sort of like the corporate wine director and, and that's a, that can be, a, you know, a job for a career. And, but there's other things I think sometimes people get into. I mean, I'm not one of those sommeliers that um, wants to make wine, but mm -hmm. some people do. And so there are these tangents, I think that, you know, something shiny catches your eye and you're like, Ooh, I want to, I want to try that. I want to do that. And so I think 
I think the, the ability to like stay and stay consistent. And I know people who are more of like the wine director role and they kind of do work a little bit more of a Monday through Friday, mm -hmm. like mid morning through, through volume, you know, maybe through the first turn or maybe not even that, that much. And I think it depends on the specific environment where you work um, and whatever deal you've managed to negotiate. I just don't think it's, I don't think it's necessarily common yeah. um, throughout the industry. So you mentioned shiny objects, and now we have to talk about reading and drinking. Um, so, so for those of you who aren't familiar, reading and drinking is a podcast that Jill does, where she every every episode reviews a a wine book, or at least a, let's say a wine a wine a book that where wine is the sort of the topic. Some of them are, and we'll talk a little bit about this kind of what even defines a wine book. But um, and and so first, Jill, like how what what prompted this, this venture? How did this kind of come to be? So this was my peak 2020 move, you know, it's mm -hmm. quarantine and I was furloughed for five months. And, and, uh, I, a friend of mine had posted an article, a GQ article about a book that had just come out, a book about wine. And I read the article and the article was just hot garbage. It was so offensive. Um, and so I was curious about the book cause you know, I believe you shouldn't just judge a book by its cover. So I'm like, well, let me order that. And so I ordered it and I read it and I thought it was one of the worst wine books I'd ever read. And I had done a little bit of work with Psalm TV, um, just simple stuff. I mean, I, I had met people who were involved and, and they do um, like little video features. And I had recorded a little video feature for like um, Sauvignon Blanc Day and like tasted some wines and like talked about it. So I, I had contact information for these folks and we were friendly and we're talking about like, gosh, is there anything that, you know, you'd be interested in working on. And I read this book and I straight up sent a message to Jason Wise, who's the, you know, the director and the producer and the writer for, for the Psalm movie and, and uh, the head honcho over there. And I was like, does somebody, do you want somebody to maybe review books for, for Psalm TV, books about wine? He's like, call me. And so it truly came out of that. It was a wild hair, um, mm -hmm. just an idea of like, would that be interesting? And, and he thought it would be. I wasn't entirely convinced. And honestly, up until, you know, the first few episodes came out, I was like, in my mind, this seems like a good idea. I'm not entirely <laughs> sure what the audience for it. <laughs> He's like, no, 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 it's cool. It's cool. And I was like, I don't know. It's pretty niche. And I, it still is pretty niche. But, you know, apparently we've gotten really good feedback and people are into it. So that's been super gratifying. But it was 100% like, what did you do in 2020? I'm like, well, I started a podcast like me and everybody else, apparently. Yeah. Um, but it's been a, pa it was totally a passion project, like just something that was interesting to me. Okay. So I want to ask some questions about the podcast because as, as mentioned, I, I listened to, to all the episodes. And so I'm very curious about a few things. First of all, okay. I assume you pick the books, right? Yes. Correct. Okay. And a hundred percent question in the books. I think one thing that's interesting to me about what books you've chosen is they are a really eclectic mix. I mean, obviously, again, all wine centric, um, but but some are, you know, you would I would say are kind of books whose primary purpose seems to be educational, and some books whose primary purpose seems to be entertainment, maybe, and then some books which are question mark both, neither, depending on maybe how well they're written or how full of misinformation they are. So. Do you feel like you're trying to kind of give a cross section and and pick books also that are maybe some that are you've definitely done some books that are well known and some books that I mean I had never even heard of not that I'm versed on every last book in the field but it's not like there aren't dozens of new wine books coming out every month so it's you know there there's only so much so so kind of how do you decide what books are fit into the sort of the model that you're trying to 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 use that's a good question. Honestly, half the time, it's just stuff I want to read. Okay. Um, like, ooh, that looks cool. I want to read that book. And that might be interesting to talk about. And I think one of the things that I've slowly started to learn is, you know, the podcast, you can get it anywhere, but it's it's through the, po the Psalm TV podcast network. And one thing I've learned is that the people who subscribe to the network for the video content, it's not, I mean, it's, it's, it's a mix. It's just consumers, but there's also industry folks in there. And so I think that's been something that's helped me hone in on the style of books is that there are a lot of different people out there who are looking to listen to, to hear different things. And I could just do, you know, reference texts and, and books that I would think would be good for setting, but I don't know how interesting that would always be because if it is, and I, and some of the books have been spectacular, some of those reference texts, um, but also books about wine and, and 
now there's been, I think, um, were maybe some examples of books breaking out of the mold where they're educational, but they're also very creative as well. And so it does allow me to kind of use what little spotlight I have to, to kind of shine it on those like, hey, someone's doing something really cool here. And I just want to help amplify their message because I believe in it. Um, and then some are, honestly, some of these are books I've read before and I want to you know, it, it can't all just be what's brand new. I, well, maybe it could be, but I don't want it to be just everything that came out over this past month. I mean, there's some oldies, but goodies out there sure. and, and books that I think that people would find interesting that maybe if they're new to the wine world, they might not even know about yet, but they, that have been out for a, a decade or more. Yeah. And I wonder too, like, you know, you have this sort of, a thing I want to talk to you about, cause I'm very curious about it is like, if you think about wine books, right. And you've already kind of alluded to this to some extent, like there are, there are reference materials of all kinds of different styles and, and frankly, like uh, quality and maybe even utility. And there are, and then there are books that are about wine that maybe like, I don't know if you've read um, like, um, I know you haven't done it on the podcast, but just for anyone reading, like uh, Jay McInerney or whatever, like people writing about wine, but sort of writing about wine. And he, you know, some of it's reporting, some of it's kind of just essays, I suppose. Um, and those are th where that's a more kind of personal thing. It's not meant to be uh, particularly, or it's meant to be, yeah, it's not meant to be educational and certainly not comprehensive. But I'm curious, you know, you mentioned this sort of se selection of books that sort of break that mold. Can, what are some examples of, of those that you've done? I mean, I, I think I know, but I don't want to assume. I think one of the books that I'm thinking of specifically when I say that is Vignette by Jane Lopes. Mm -hmm. And I think that book is, and I, I said it in my podcast, I think it's a triumph. It's such an interesting way. And, and we all learn differently about wine. Look, full disclosure, I know Jane, she's a good friend of mine. Sure. Um, and that book has so much good information in it, but it's also, there's so much, there's such a creative presentation for it. Um, it's, for visual learners or for people who are looking to maybe memorize or do compares and contrasts or just for like funny stories who are looking for more of a personal thing. And, and she talks about it in the book. You can read that book three different ways. And I think about it, I'm like, it's not exactly like a choose your own adventure kind of book that maybe we looked at when we were little kids, but I just, I just think it's so impressive that you can contain so much academic information in such an entertaining mm -hmm. package. It, I, that book in particular, I think is like kind of a, a breaking the mold. Like it, it kind of crosses genres of styles of books. And I think it was spectacular. And I told Jane, and this is, this, there's a, actually two books I've reviewed. They're both written by women named Jane, um, Jane Anson's Bordeaux book also, but with these books, it's so funny. It never would have occurred to me to think about this, but <laughs> it's like a secret little joy when I get this book and it has like a, a ribbon that's like been woven into the spine of the book where it's an automatic bookmark because uh -huh. I hate to dog ear these beautiful books. And I'm always like, there's like post-it <laughs> notes and all this junk in the, and so I need something to keep my place. And it's like, oh, what a like a little present from the author, <laughs> from the publisher. I love that. that was so funny. Both of those books had it. Just like a, a little, the things that make me happy, a little tiny piece of ribbon in the book. <laughs> okay, so let's get to some fun stuff, um, and then maybe some less fun stuff. So right. on the fun side, or at least the fun side to me, um, was there a book that you reviewed that really surprised you at how much you liked it, that you maybe maybe hadn't read before and went into it with sort of low expectations, and it kind of came back to you as like, you know what, I actually think it's a good book. Ooh, interesting. Um, I mean, there are some that are surprising for sure. That that book by Jane Anson surprised me because it is thoroughly a reference text and it's mm -hmm. huge. It's like 600 pages, but her voice makes its way in and I've never met her, um, but she just, there's like, just like teeny tiny amounts of humor and some, some personal like takes on things. And, and she certainly is an expert, but I was very pleasantly surprised at how non-dry a a big heavy book about Bordeaux was, that was really pleasant. Um, you know, what was interesting also is I did the, I reviewed the book sideways and mm -hmm. it was interesting to me. I was surprised because I had seen the movie a couple times before and I remembered not liking the movie at all. And then I rewatched the movie after I read the book and I was like, oh, the movie's a little bit better than I remembered. It's actually like a little sympathetic and a little romantic. Like, I don't know why I'd made up my mind that it just sucked, but the book was so different I have, from the movie. And I'm always- <laughs> I have a guess as to why you have 
a bad impression of the movie and it comes from having worked in restaurants totally. at the time the movie came out. Yes, <laughs> totally. Um, but the book was so different from the movie. And so it reinforced my belief that, you know, if there's a movie made a, from a book adapted from a book, you should definitely read the book. Um, but the book was wild. It was crazy. And so it was interesting how little of, or how, how little of the book, some of those really important themes and, and details in the book made it into the movie. Um, so that was, kind of a surprise and that was that was very interesting um and then I'm trying to think what else has been um kind of a big surprise well can I, can I tell you one that yeah. that I read that uh that you reviewed that surprised me when I read it and I think as my recollection goes when you reviewed it you seemed a little surprised by how well you thought it was put together which was uh Big Max and Burgundy um, oh gosh yes that book was so well done um and I wasn't you know, I wasn't sure what to expect. Brand new. And I, you know, I, I remember going through that book, you know, chapter after chapter. And I was like, you know, what I love so much about it. Cause on its face, this idea of like Big Max and Burgundy, it sounds like, like maybe yeah. it could be silly. Maybe it could be frivolous. It sounds and, like a Buzzfeed article, which come to life, yes. which is like, I think for this, for me as a, as a, you know, as a, we can talk about food wine pairing in a minute, but like in general, I was like, okay, whatever. I've done the, I've seen that I've done the like pairing wine with, junk food but like mm -hmm. and i still think that maybe that that title is like doesn't do the actually kind of does the book a little bit of a disservice although i get why they went with it but i was surprised at how it was much more than kind of gimmickry that's i guess what i had thought yeah. it would be i was so surprised that and i've never met the author but i mean she's she's got legitimate credentials and yep. she's a wine educator and and we have some of the same credentials and I was like, well, she knows her stuff, but this, like the science and the facts, like they were all there and it was all correct. And, and the theory behind the pairings, cause look, food and wine pairings, it's just a suggestion. And there's reasons why we think that something might be good, but it's truly in the palate of the beholder. And the theory behind the pairings, I was like, oh, that makes complete sense. And it's so funny that you said like a, like a Buzzfeed article, like pairing Halloween candy and wine, like that article has been written a million times mm -hmm. and it comes up every single year my friends who are writers like who freelance like and i'm getting pitched one more time who wants to talk about wine and or wine and girl scout cookies and all that kind of stuff and it's so funny i've done classes for my staff you know around halloween for wine and halloween candy just to get people like excited and like i don't know forgetting about the the drudgery of of everyday you know restaurant life and I mean, her list, it was like a hundred different types of candy. It was yeah. exhaustive, but the, you know, I would zero in on some of the pairings and I was like, oh, damn straight. Like that's a good pairing. And I wouldn't yeah. have thought about it. And, and some of them I don't want to try. Like, I think I talked <laughs> about circus peanuts and how they're disgusting and I'm not going to try that pairing, but I believe that her suggested wine pairing was a, was a good one. That book was, that was a great book. And I, and I, I remember too, I was, um, I was reading it and my sister who, and she drinks wine, she's not super into wine, um, but she saw it and she like picked it up and she was like, huh, I don't know. I mean, it's kind of interesting. Like for someone who isn't inclined to necessarily read books about wine, um, but who listens to my podcast, which I appreciate um, to pick up the book and be like, is that true? Is that interesting? And I was like, see, that's this idea that we're talking about that that book can reach people all throughout the spectrum of just, you know, novice consumers um, and, and drinkers. And then also someone who, who knows a lot about wine and food and wine pairing would also find it really entertaining and informative. So that book was, yeah, that's a great one. That was such a surprise and such a good book. Yeah. I, I definitely enjoyed that you also felt like it had a lot more to it than I think I had assumed going in. Okay, so I'll give you, speaking of choose your own adventures, I'll give you a choose your own adventure mm -hmm. show. Although you could choose both, I guess. Would you like to trash some books that you thought were really bad or talk about why so many wine books have factual inaccuracies? Let's do the latter first. Okay, so why is it that- I think that, it ties into some bad books. Yes. So why is it that so many wine books struggle with, at times at least, not, subjective information like pairings right someone could put pairings in and you and i might disagree but generally speaking i think as long as the pairing isn't kind of insane we can sort of say well i might not think this is the best pairing but people can have different tastes but just like misspellings misattribute like putting uh you know saying using the incorrect form of variety and varietal which i know drives both of us crazy um oh my God. all kinds of stuff like one woman crusade <laughs> Uh, so why do you think after having done two seasons of the show with more to come, 
do you have a sense for why so many of these inaccuracies outright, I mean, I don't want to say falsehoods, but whatever, just things that are wrong, make it to publication in these books. I have a hunch and I don't yeah. know because I've never written a book and I don't know the ins and outs of the publishing industry, but my hunch from the get was that the, some books I feel like maybe they were self-published and I'm just not really aware that there was really like, there's an editor listed, but maybe that person's not so much an editor as like a BFF. Um, but I wonder, and I, I suspect that in the world of publishing and in the world of editing, that there might be a, a little bit of a, a gap or a void of someone who can edit a book who has enough wine knowledge to catch those inaccuracies and those misspellings and those mistakes. And that's just a hunch. I mean, I think about like, you know, there are publishing houses that publish, you know, textbooks, math textbooks and science textbooks. And it's not like you can, it's not like there's, of course there's going to be errors in books. It happens. I mean, you know, that was like a big deal when you're in school, like, oh my God, there's an error in my math book. Like, mm -hmm. ooh, someone caught it. You're so smart. Um, but those specific publishing houses, I think, you know, they've got people working as editors who are, who can really go through things with a fine tooth comb. And, and I wonder if that's just not the case when it comes to wine. That's my, that's my suspicion. And then I also think some of the onus is of course on the author mm -hmm. um, that, and that was one of the things that was so surprising about some of the books that were, you know, with the mistakes, it's like, I mean, I know who wrote it and I know that person actually is smart. So like, were they just sloppy or not paying attention? Like, I don't know what happened there. So I, I think obviously some of the responsibility, a lot of it lies with the author because so many of the books don't have misinformation. I might not agree with what the author says or they may misappropriate, misappropriate variety and varietal, but they're not full of like ridiculousness. Um, the ones that are full of just crazy errors that like you could just easily Google. I, I think it's, probably a mix of like not double checking as an author, but also I, I don't think there's an editor out there who was able to like vet that information or knew that there was even a possibility it was wrong. And honestly, that's one of the things that kind of led me to this idea of this podcast is as my knowledge grew, I was realizing as I was reading books, I was like, oh, that's not right. And I wouldn't have <laughs> yeah. caught that if I didn't know as much as I know about wine. I don't know it all. No one can, but it was sort of this thing is like, wow, I've been working in this industry and, and, and I've, uh, you know, accumulated some knowledge. I, I you know, I've, and I was able to catch things because of that, I think. And so I, I think it's a combination of factors. And I think you're definitely right that the deference to the author, um, and probably it's worse with certain authors who have a certain, you know, cloud or gravitas to them, where an editor who's maybe not a subject matter expert is less likely to even think that, oh, this person could, they couldn't possibly be wrong. They're so-and-so. Um, and I also wonder if there's a, a, a sense in some of the books you reviewed that like, does it really matter? Like, like on the publisher side, right? Or the, even the author side, maybe. Does it really matter if I'm right or wrong? Like people are buying this book for, they're not buying it as a reference material. They're buying it for a fun, breezy read or for, you know, because it fits a certain mod, like it fits into a lifestyle that they're, aspiring to or something right that that in a, in a sense the content the the veracity of the content is not really crucial well i mean yes and no because I, I probably take it way more seriously than a lot of other people for sure and and that's fine some people might be might just be like you know looking for a good breezy read you know to you know pass the time or, or something like that and that's completely fine but i think that one of the things that's so frustrating with the wine world not even in books and stuff, is that it's so easy for um, a mistake or a misstatement to get re like repeated and mm -hmm. it, it just, it snowballs. And so it's like, well, I mean, I kind of wish that things were set straight, you know, from, from the jump because then someone reads it and they have no reason to, to think it's anything other than the truth. And then they repeat it and then someone else hears it. And they're like, I mean, I mean, I talked about that in Sideways, like the Merlot effect was real. That movie had a legitimate ripple effect on the wine industry. And that line, like, first of all, the, that wine, you know, the big irony of that, of that movie that, you know, Miles is drinking the Cheval Blanc, that wasn't the wine in the book. Yeah. And so like they, they, they created that whole aspect, the screenwriters or whatever, um, when they adapted it, they created this whole thing. And 
that line in the book was such a minor part of that scene but the effect of that movie and that statement had a really big effect on the wine industry and and the sales of merlot and the sales of pinot noir and so i guess maybe it doesn't have a big effect but you never know. And I, yeah. I do say, and I, and I do feel that there are plenty of folks in the wine industry who are, and I hear from them, who are sort of like at the beginning um, of their of their career and they're really knowledge hungry. And mm -hmm. that's why I think it's important to have the correct knowledge because you might as well get it right from the beginning. Okay. That's how I feel. It's easier to learn it right the first time. Yeah, for sure. Okay. So let's talk about a few books that you didn't like. Um, you can name names. Um, I mean, the, the reviews, the podcasts are out there, so it's not like it's a secret. Um, but, but also just kind of, it seems to me, again, as a listener, that two of the things that you find, you've seemed to find objectionable in wine books. One is, as we've already talked about, misinformation. And two is, I guess what I would describe as, and maybe you've also described it as kind of you know, frankly, snobbery and snobbery without any re any real seeming recognition of its snobbery. I mean, look, writing a book about wine is kind of inherently a snobby thing to do. It, it, wine yes. has all those connotations. And no matter how much you try and dress it up with, oh, you know, again, whether, you know, not to knock the book, but you can try and pair wine with Big Macs, but in some way, like wine is just inherently a subject that it has a certain snobbery to it. But, but it feels like the, some of the books you've liked the least are are books that are frankly, you know, pompous. And it might be that the people who write them are pompous or at least come across that way in print. So, but I don't want to put words in your mouth. So, so what is it that you've found that you, that have not, where, where books have just been, you know, bad or, or not books that you've enjoyed? Those things for sure. The misinformation, is, but also, yes, the snobbery that bothers me a lot. I'm a generalist and, and, you know, I was talking about this with, um, with a friend like last week about one of the books that I didn't like that did have a lot of misinformation. And I think the thing I liked most about the book were the illustrations. <laughs> and my friend was like, well, you know, it's a reverend and it's, you know, and I, I was like, yeah, I read all these reviews online and I read that book three times because I wasn't entirely convinced it wasn't a satire. Mm -hmm. Like, I was like, are they making a joke? Because if so, like, I don't think anyone's in on it. And and I, I get that that could be an idea, but also that book was geared towards beginners in the wine industry. And I, it was so full of mistakes. I was like, that's going to set some people on the wrong road or just go out and like kind of foster this notion and, and develop more like douchey wine bros, which the yeah. world does not need more of. There, there are plenty of those. Um, but I also think, yeah, the arrogance um, and sometimes it's, it's thinly, thinly covered or thinly coated. Um, were just the choice of words. And I talked about that in Better, um, Better with Bubbles, um, that there was so much privilege in that book that it was just, and I, I talked about it in Eric Asimov's book, How to Love mm -hmm. Wine. And, and, um, and I, you know, I was a little concerned about that. I was like, well, it looks like I'm picking a fight with, you know, a big wig in the wine world. But I was like, I try to keep it very much about what's in the pages and not the person. And look, I don't even know some of these people. Sometimes I know the authors and sometimes I've never met them. So I try to really keep it about what they put on the page. Cause I sort of feel like if you write the book, those are your words. It's fair game. Yeah. Um, sure. And I do think some of, I think some of these books are a little bit, um, they're vanity pieces. And I think that they're some books, some of the ones I love the most are written by legitimate writers and and you can tell when someone like Eric Asimov's book, I didn't like so much of the book, but he's a writer and he's a good writer. Mm -hmm. So it was very well written. I just didn't like some of the stuff he wrote. Sometimes the books are just because you think you know about wine certainly doesn't mean you can also write about it effectively. Mm -hmm. um, and again, that goes to the, the idea of needing an editor. And then sometimes it has to do with... Um, the the actual book visually um you know i talked about this i really liked you know neil rosenthal's book um but i mean it, it was published like 10 12 years ago but it had like these really grainy black and white photos and like it, it did it did no sort like you just yeah. didn't even need photos because they were so bad or uh, books where there's like a lot of white space and a lot of filler and it's like are you trying to make this book seem like it has more gravitas and like it's big and hard covered but there's like nothing in the pages and I'm counting and like there's there's like a, a little text book you know box on this page and there's a whole lot of white space and sometimes I, I kind of wonder about that so it's a little bit aesthetics it's a little bit style it's a little bit content it's it's kind of all of those things so a couple of other questions about this and then I want to move a little bit away from the from books um at least sort of so one of them is, you know, you've you've done, I think, as far as I as I recall, I think you've done 
maybe Sideways is the only work of fiction you've done so far that is is that you've reviewed. Not that there's a huge body of of literature that's a really wine centric that's also fiction, but like, is that something you would like to review more? Sure, totally. Because something could be, and there I have some books on my shelf that I already own that I'm thinking about um, reviewing, and and a lot of times there's like you know, it's, it's nonfiction, it's historical, like Wine and War is a good example that like the authors piece that book together based on copious interviews. It's not, it's not fiction, it's, it's nonfiction, but it's also not, it's, it's like, it has an interesting, yeah. um, it's not like first person, it's, it's cobbled together with all these individual stories. I would, I love the idea of fiction and I've read a few books. Um, and I'm, I'm always thinking about this where wine plays a prominent role because you could include legitimate and interesting information about wine in a fiction work. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, I would, I would totally consider that. And I think it would keep things kind of fresh and real. And, and there might be people who, you know, don't want to read some of the more um, academic books, uh, but a fiction work about wine might be really interesting to them, but the wine information could still be good. Okay. And then two more questions about books and then we'll move on. One is, and this is a little bit putting you on the spot, I apologize, but, but okay. if you had to say, okay, I'm starting a collection of wine books and I've got to buy these, I don't know, five or six books. And they do, they can be books that you've reviewed for the podcast or not. They don't have to be exclusive, exclusively books you've reviewed. Like what do you think someone, a beginner's sort of wine library should include? Hmm. That's a good question. I mean, I think um, there is a fair amount of redundancy in um, kind of like uh, the intro wine style books. Um, there's and I, I've actually tried not to review more than just, you know, one or two because they all tend to cover a lot of the same information. Mm -hmm. I do think in that genre, and I reviewed it, Aldo Sam's book, Wine Simple, I think is, and I recommend that book to people all the time. I think mm -hmm. it's a really good book. It's funny. It's visually appealing. I mean, there were a couple of like little bits of information and like some stuff has changed with Austrian wine. I mean, that's the one negative. Well, I mean, the biggest negative thing I think with books is that the world of wine does always evolve and it evolves faster than books. And so books do become out of date sure. rapidly, but I'm a you know, I'm a bibliophile. I love reading them. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to not read books just in favor of like searching things on the internet. But I think from a beginner standpoint, that's one of my favorites. It's really funny. There's a lot of master sommeliers who've written books. Um, and most of them have written like intro style books. And I've sort of made a conscious decision not to review any of those. Um, just because, I mean, I'll read the books and, and I've mixed reviews, but they get enough, they got enough going on and they get enough um, press that, you know, I, I don't need to like make my sandbox any smaller <laughs> and, yeah. and start reviewing um, books by other master sommeliers for sure. But um, so that I think Aldo's book would for sure be a good one. I think, you know, if you want um, like the uh, like the Oxford Companion to Wine or something like a, a solid reference text that spans the globe um, is a really good one as well. Um, what else would be on my on my house. I think a book about food and wine pairing would be if that's if that's interesting to you. It's not something that everybody who drinks wine, you know, cares about, but I do think it can be so pleasurable and so fun and you can just pursue that. So I think there's a there's a number of books. Um you know, like I said, I uh Big Max and, and Burgundy is a really good one and I don't review books by other master sommeliers, but look, Evan Goldstein's written a couple of really good books on food and wine pairing. Mm -hmm. Um or Karen Page and Andrew Dornenberg, like um, what to drink with what you eat and things like that. Like there are some really good, but I think a food and wine pairing book would be up there as well. Um, you know, I, I branched out last kind of last season and not to tip my hand, but I'm going to branch out with at least one book this season. And it won't, it'll be about something, an alcoholic beverage, but it won't necessarily be about wine. Um, and I, I think there's a lot of crossover that a lot of times if folks drink wine, they might be also drinking beer and cocktails. Um, or beer and spirits. And so I think in your must have library, something, you know, something like that, I think would be a book that covered that would be really good. Um, and I, I loved the cocktail book that, that I reviewed. Mm -hmm. um, and I will say, again, I, I just, I will probably recommend, and I teach a lot of wine classes and people always ask, you know, like, oh, what book should I read? And I've given it as gifts, but I do think wine and war from a non-academic standpoint, just because it combines history and actual producers who still exist today. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think it 
can create for just even someone who knows the, the least bit about wine, what, what is so enthralling about wine for wine geeks? Is yeah. that it combines history and science and war and, and it, it, that book does a really good job of linking those things. And, and then, you know, the same could be said of like Shadows in the Vineyard, that one is, gets a little bit heavy into some, some history and stuff like that. But it's just this idea that wine is not just a, a scientific pursuit and it's not all about wine geekery and snobbery, but like, it's this thing, it's this real story of families and people making wine throughout the history of the world. And um, especially, you know, depending on the age of the person reading the book, like they might, you know, might have a parent or grandparent or great grandparent who is involved in some aspect of, you know, with World War II. And so I think, um, I think a book like that would be, I would rec- I think everyone should read that book. It's really Very cool. cool. Yeah, no, I really enjoyed that book. And I think, you know, you mentioned what it kind of gives this insight into what appeals or w- what draws many of us into wine beyond just the enjoyment of drinking wine itself. And that book in particular kind of gives you the sense of like how still to this day, but certainly in the past, how much uh, people have overcome to continue to produce wine, you know, like the struggles, whether it's war, whether it's, you know, uh, environmental challenges, whether, you know, economic turbulence, all these things that have happened and that continue to happen and that, you know, make this producing these, this beverage really challenging and, and sometimes, you know, puts people's life and livelihoods at risk, but, but that there is this belief in a lot of the world, certainly in a lot of Europe, of the sort of centrality of wine to people's existence, that it is not a luxury, but that it is, it is central to being alive, that for the Champenois and the Alsatians and whatnot, that, that like, to not make wine would be to be, would be to die, and that, that there is something yeah. very, I mean, it's a little crazy, but it's also very beautiful to me. And, and, and I appreciate that. And I agree. I think that book does a nice job of evoking that without being maudlin about it. Correct. Okay, I, so I completely agree with that. Yeah. Last book question. Are you going to write a book? I don't know what I would write a book about. You know, wine, um, probably. That's the thing. <laughs> What's that? Yeah, I mean, yeah, right. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I certainly don't have any plans to. Um, and I don't know what I would, I don't have some like burning desire to put pen to paper, fingers to keyboard and, and start, you know, start putting, um, putting thoughts down. So I don't know. I mean, never, never rule anything out. Cause you just never know what turns life is going to give you, but I don't have any plans to. <laughs> okay. Fair. Just had to ask. Um, yeah. Okay. So, so if you I'd were rather be a book editor, I'd rather be a wine book editor, to be honest. There you go. Well, <laughs> publishers listening, get at Jill. Um, <laughs> Okay, so uh, a few a few other things that I just kind of want to talk about, just generally in wine. Um, you mentioned before, you know, uh, I think you like me are itching to get back out and traveling again. Where, if you kind of got the magic wand, where where is it that you would want to go? And with the caveat that it has to be somewhere you have not been yet. Ooh, all right. If it's somewhere I've not been yet, um, I'm lucky. I've traveled a lot, but there's plenty of places I've never been. Um, I think I would like to go if I can like pick three places. Sure. Um, I'd like to go to Greece. I've never yeah. been there. Um, I'd like to go it's to New great. Zealand. Yeah, I've never been to New Zealand. Um, and I think I might like to go to, um, it, I think it might be interesting to go to somewhere like the Republic of Georgia or somewhere like kind of in the cradle of like where, uh, you know, where wine has its, its true origins. Um, but yeah, I, the list is long. <laughs> Very cool. And maybe kind of could be connected to this or not. Like in general, what are you drinking these days? Like, are you, are there, you know, regions, varieties, styles that you're particularly drawn to, or you kind of drink lots of different kinds of wines? I've always been kind of a generalist. Um, I, you know, it's funny over this past year, a lot of people drank a lot more alcohol. Um, And I, I didn't drink as much wine as maybe people might assume. And I think it's for a couple of reasons. I mean, there's plenty of wine in my house. It's not because there wasn't wine. Um, but it's, I think it's a couple of things. I mean, I live by myself and um, I, one of the things I like so much about wine is sharing it with people, you know, mm-hmm. like over just, it doesn't have to be a fancy meal. It doesn't have to be wine paired with the food, but just like popping a bottle and, and sharing it with your friends. And that wasn't something that I was really able to do. I mean, I, you know, saw friends from a distance, you know, we were outside and, you know, on stoops and things like that, but it wasn't the same. Yeah. Um, 
And so I was less inclined to just to open, open bottles. Um, I mean, I, I did occasionally, but then you also have a bottle open and you just, it would be easy just to keep drinking it. And that's not a terribly healthy habit to get into um, over and over and over. And so I did a couple of things. One, when I was studying for the tasting portion of the master sommelier exam, I, um, I kind of built this tasting cellar and I would core, I would spend my money on like buying what I thought to be like very classic, very high quality representative examples of wines I believed were testable and I would core in them. And then I would use, after passing the exam, I would use those wines to pour flights for other people. And Corvin is, it's great. It's not forever. It doesn't preserve wines forever, but it, it preserves them for a while. And then, you know, when COVID hit, people aren't coming over my house to have to do blind tasting because there's no exams to be given. Yeah. And so I realized after like a month or so into furlough and quarantine, I was like, hmm, I have the solution. And so <laughs> I went downstairs. And I had all these wines that, you know, and I think when you corv in a bottle, like the minute it would get down to about a third of the bottle anyway, I would have pulled the cork, but I had all these wines I had previously accessed and they were of varying fill levels. And so I started with the wines that I, you know, had accessed first. And so I was like, I'm just going to pull corks. And it also gave me a very good insight into like how they, how they were preserved. And I was very pleasantly surprised. Um, But I realized that, you know, I'm not going to be pouring a flight for anyone anytime soon anyway, but also you can just get a more current vintage because also some of those wines, they're not, you know, if, if someone's tasting a Pinot Grigio, they want the current release. They're going to want, you know, like a 2019 yeah. they're not going to want a 2017. And so I need to go ahead and drink that. And so I, <laughs> I drank these like partially access bottles. Then I also drank a lot of gin and tonics. <laughs> ah, well, there you go. Also a good solution yeah. <laughs> for sure. Uh, yeah. On the, on the, <laughs> yeah, on the topic of, um, of kind of the, uh, Oh, this was, uh, you, you probably had a question in my head, now I'm forgetting what it was. Um, on the topic of, uh, oh yeah, of, of sort of looking at wines sort of for, um, okay, so how is it? When I, when I was studying for much lower level certifications than you, I found that I had this weird, uh, like, I would fi- I found myself drawn to wines that I was good at getting blind, even if I hadn't necessarily yes. liked them otherwise. Did you have this relationship with wine? Like, did you start to find, be like, I don't know, whatever those might've been, because all of, everyone who does this stuff finds, hey, I just have a knack for, for X or Y, even if you don't like it. Like, was that a thing that you experienced? Yes, and I think that that's fairly common. And I find that it's you, you, the like, the whomever you, can be very successful identifying wines blind that either you really like or conversely that you really don't like. Mm-hmm. And I find that both of those things true. Um, you know, there are some wines that I just, I love, and I've heard friends talk about this, that like, you know, I love Riesling. And so Riesling is one of those wines that like is, you know, for me, it's one of those wines that kind of hope to get in a flight. I love white Bordeaux and I always want to get white Bordeaux in a flight. I don't love Viognier. Mm-hmm. There are great examples and there's terrible, and that's true of all wine, but it's not my favorite grape, but I always want to get that wine in a blind tasting um, because it's so distinctive um, mm-hmm. that I'm, and I, I mean, I've definitely tasted them and like, oh, I know what this is. And I make a face because it's not my favorite wine. And so I think that it's the, the things that we are most successful frequently are the wines that we love or the wines that we don't love because we have such a visceral reaction to them. Mm-hmm. Are there wines in your time in, in the wine industry that you've gone from hating to loving? Mm. Or I guess loving well, to hating, I, if necessary. I, th- I actually think maybe the inverse, not hating, but just, um, I think my trajectory with wine was similar to a lot of people. I, rem- I remember, and I don't remember exactly when this was or where this was, but I remember being in a wine store and I was looking to buy wine and I was talking to, you know, whomever was helping me and I was talking about how I just like, you know, big fruity red wines and the bigger, the better. And that's just not even a statement I would say anymore. Um, and I think I ended up buying some Chateauneuf de Pop and look, I like Chateauneuf de Pop, but I was like boozy, alcoholic, fruity red wines and that fit the ticket. And so that's a super recommendation on the part of that person, but that's not really a, a phrase that I would use anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, like the bigger, the better, like I want like some fruity high alcohol red wine. Like there are great examples, but I don't seek them out. You know, if they come across my palate, that's great. Um, so I think that's changed for sure. Um, I think I've become a little bit more of a white wine drinker than a red wine drinker. I think I started off drinking much more um, in the way of red wines. Yeah, I will. Um, and 
you know, I am like many people, you know, I'm situational and seasonal in terms of what I like to drink my wines, but I think I've become a little bit more of a white wine drinker. And I was talking with a friend of mine um, and we were talking about Burgundy and, and she's like, if you have, you know, the best, the best of the best, red or white, like, what are you going for with Burgundy? I was like, oh, white Burgundy, hundred mm-hmm. percent. Like I'm I've literally there. been in situations where I've gotten goosebumps from like a spectacular bottle of white burgundy. And I'm like, wow, that's, I mean, that's a physical response. I'm like, that wine gave me chills. It was so good. Yeah. Um, and so I think about that and that, that makes an impact on me. Yeah. I think that, that, that is true for me too. Like, I think I started out, I think people start out with wine, maybe a lot of different perspectives, but usually I think people get interested in wine either on the like, yeah, full bodied, like lots of fruit and alcohol reds. I think, maybe previous generations, people got started with sweeter wines. I don't know if that happens as much these days, or they got started with like very kind of kind of crisp, innocuous white wines. Cause like they saw wine as like a thing you sip in this on the patio, you know, kind of mm-hmm. without thinking about it. And for me, I was definitely the red wine side also. And um, I actually found interestingly that like, I went through a phase where I definitely was like, oh no. But now I kind of like actually kind of enjoy from time to time the like, Full, like a big Napa cab or Zinfandel or, or Chateau de Pop. Like they're not the ones I want to drink all the time, but like I, I have come to the point just for me personally, where like I have a tremendous respect for the like European, you know, French, Italian, Spanish, whatever idea that like wine is something you have with food on the table. And that is, you know, that is its purpose is it's a compliment to food. The food is to complement the wine. And like, we share these things together. Great. But you know what? I live in the United States and here in the United States, people want to drink wine at other times, including me sometimes. Sometimes what I want to drink is a glass of wine. And I actually kind of want wine that doesn't have to be paired with food sometimes because like, I don't always want to eat when I want a glass of wine. And I fought that personally for a long time. I said like, no, that's not, that's what, you know, you know, I I guess in my snobbier days, like that's what normal people do. Like I'm the person who's (laughs) like, I, wine is a thing that is, that, that of course the people who, who we most associate with wine, the French, the Italians, et cetera, are the ones who know best. And it's like, they know a lot and they're great. But like, you know, I don't think it's necessarily the only, I don't think wine's only place is at the dinner table or the lunch table or the breakfast table in some of these places. Um, For me, and so so I found that some of those wines actually, you know what, like sometimes what I want is a glass of of Chateau de Pop or whatever. And I don't want to feel like I have to have a, you know, leg of lamb to go with it. Like I can just enjoy the wine for what it is. And yes, some wines are, you're doing them a disservice by, by having them in that context. And, and that's a whole nother thing, but like, yeah, I, I, I have kind of come to that point, but with white wine for me, I think the thing that I learned, and I would be curious if you agree with this or not, is that in talking to a lot of winemakers and, and tasting a lot of wine, is I think what I appreciate about white wine is I think it's harder to make truly great white wine than it is to make great red wine. Um, and it's certainly a lot easier to make decent red wine than it is to make decent white wine. Like white wine gives you nothing or very little to hide behind. You know, red wine has, generally speaking, barrel aging. It has blending in a lot of cases. Not that there aren't great white wine blends, obviously, but like a lot of times you are looking at in white wine, something that is much more, um, you know, it just has less, less areas where you can screw up and get away with it. And, and, that to me is, I've always kind of found that appealing, you know, just sort of uh, conceptually. That, I totally agree with that. Um, there's just, you know, if we think about it, like if you were blind tasting wines, there's more stuff that you have to say about red wines because there are there are considerations. You have to think about things like tannins and that's just not a consideration with like nearly all white wines. Yeah. And so, yeah, there's, there's a, there's a lot of transparency um, of of winemaking and of provenance, and I think, and of course, is that way with red wines too. But yeah, there's just there are some factors that we have in red wines that we don't have in white, and so yeah, it's a little bit more right there in front of you. Absolutely. Well, Jill, thank you so much for your time. This was a lot of fun. Um, I really appreciate oh, totally. you really uh, sharing a lot about what uh, what you've been up to and and uh, talking about wine books with me because. Um, I find them endlessly fascinating. I might even be so bold in the future to send you like at least one suggestion if I come across something Please that I think feel is. Free. I, I there's you know I always appreciate that because I I mean for especially for like new books or things I haven't read before, which 
I've only, I mean, I, I read a lot, but I haven't read all the books out there. Sure. Um, and so there are certainly things that I'm not familiar with. So I totally appreciate suggestions. Okay. 100%. Cool. Well, that goes yeah, for all that- of you out there too. Send, send them to Jill. You can find her on social media or you can, uh, I don't know, there's probably a Psalm TV uh, account that you can track down. But again, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. This was a lot of fun uh, and look forward to uh, listening. Hey, Zach, could I ask a quick question before you end? Sure, sure. Please go ahead. Sorry, I just wanted to jump in before you. I really enjoyed this discussion between the two of you. So thank you very much, Jill and Zach. Um, I was going to ask Zach uh, if Joe was planning to write a book, but you scooped me, so that's good. <laughs> um, but I was wondering, just just to something to put a little seed in your mind, maybe Jill, that story about you and your mother traveling to France, that's a road trip. And your <laughs> totally. A story is visiting all the wineries. Your B story is how you developed your relationship with your mother. So it might be something to, that could be developed. That's anyway. really cool. I hadn't thought about it like that, but that's a great, that's a, that's a very good suggestion. Yeah. Well, you've got the, the two levels going on there, the relationship. It's always a good thing. Uh, your own version of sideways, but uh, probably <laughs> right. perhaps more touching in a memoir sense. Um, and I, Last question. I just wondered if, if there's a wine book you wish someone would write or has the whole thing, whole waterfront been covered already? That's a great question. The wine book I wish somebody would write. Mm. I don't even know how to answer that because I'm sure that there is and I just don't know it yet. I, right. that is, I'm stumped. Um, that is a really good question. Um, I mean, I don't think that the world needs another um, Wine 101 book. I mean, there's a, there's a million of them out there. Um, but yeah. Oh, God. I don't even know how to answer that question. Oh, that's okay. That's I'm going to think venture, about it, though. Man, you yeah. really... Like, <laughs> can I venture <laughs> a, a really, thought? Yeah. So true. I would say that, that some of the, the writing about food and wine that's been most affecting to me has been, and maybe it's just my own personal sensibilities, has been want, writing that that makes a, an argument for appreciation of wine on sort of, you know, kind of aesthetic or philosophical grounds. Um, I think of like, there's a book um, by uh, Angelo Pellegrini. It's, a, it's an old book. It's from the, like, I think he wrote it in the 50s or 60s. Uh, and I, God, what is it called? It's called, um, I should remember, uh, like, um, I don't know. It's something about like the pleasures of food and wine or something like that. I don't remember the name of it now, but it's definitely very dated. Like you would not use it as a reference material for anything, but just in terms of explaining why caring about wine is a worthwhile pursuit. And I think for all of us, that's something that maybe occasionally needs defending. Um, I think like Kingsley Amos is another guy who does this a lot, although he wrote more about spirits and stuff like that. He didn't write, he, his, his approach to wine was kind of, he was pretty dismissive of wine, but I enjoy reading him because he's so, for a time when maybe caring about these things was a little bit, uh, he was a little like um, out of step with with sort of the general British conception of what was what was proper at the time, like to care a lot about the way you, you to care about a lot what you drank, um, frankly, um, those kinds of things. And, and I think someone could write a book, you know, I think like some of the like, um, like Alice Firing's books have tried to do this from a very dogmatic standpoint of kind of creating a, a an ethos around wine, maybe. I think someone could write a book that is kind of uh, a de- in defense of drinking wine, but is but is more, you know, a little less, I don't know, uh, whatever, a little less Alice Firing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, I guess in my, to answer Natalie's question, I was thinking about it, and, and it's kind of a joke answer, but um, I make no secret of my like fangirling about Jan Johnson. Um, uh-huh. So if there was, you know, a gal pal book about, you know, Jill and Jance um, and how they, um, <laughs> that would that's great. You yeah. just need to take a road trip with her. <laughs> I need to meet her. <laughs> there you go. First part, but yeah. Um, I'm, I'm convinced that we'd be pals, but yeah, I guess I no, it's not going to be a Som TV. Yeah. It's not going to be a Som TV show. Come on, you got the pull. Your lips, to Jason Wise's ears, right? You, well, you got his phone <laughs> number, so just text him. Apparently, that I works. I know. You're like, hey, you need to us. Um, yeah. No, I, uh, I totally. Um, I, I think she's. I think she's. She's pretty cool. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, <laughs> sideways part 
part three or whatever. That's right. Excellent. All right. Well, Jill, I will let you go. I have to go cook dinner. So it's time for me to say goodbye as well. But thanks. Thanks everyone for being here. And Jill, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much, Zach. This was a blast. I really enjoyed it.